0: Hello everybody and welcome to the Institute for Government for this event that we're delighted to be holding with the support of Unbound Philanthropy. Um, Today we're looking at the eternal question, is the Home Office fit for purpose? One of the machinery of government questions that always seems to be with us, despite the fact that the Home Office has changed functions a number of times. It remains one of the most controversial and troubled departments in government, currently on its fifth Home Secretary since 2016, also known as its fifth Home Secretary since 2010, uh, at least the 2010 election, thanks to that very long tenure of Theresa May as Home Secretary. It has a wide range of responsibilities, uh, most often in the news probably because its responsibilities around immigration, refugee, asylum policy, but also with responsibilities on police, police. Uh, and counter-terrorism and stuff like that. So to discuss whether the Home Office is fit for purpose, uh, whether it needs reform, uh, and whether it is reforming in the light of the Windrush scandal, I'm delighted to be joined by a brilliant panel. So we have, uh, in alphabetical order, uh, Sam Coates, who is joining us remotely from the US. Thanks very much, Sam. I think it's a really uncivilized time in the US. Sam. Was a former special advisor to Sajid Javid, who you'll remember is one of those five Home Secretaries I mentioned who took over in the wake of Amber Rudd's resignation. Uh, we then have Amelia Gentleman. Amelia will be familiar to most of you for her sterling work at The Guardian, reporting on the Windrush scandal, which she then turned into a book called The Windrush Betrayal. Uh, Sir Philip Rutnam. A former colleague of mine at the Treasury, but reaching the elevated heights of Permanent Secretary at the Department of Transport, but then Permanent Secretary at the Home Office. So here to give us that sort of official take on uh, what the Home Office is like to actually try to make work from inside. And last but by no means least, Enver Solomon. Enver is now Chief Executive of the Refugee Council, but has previously worked on a whole range of criminal justice issues. So that's the panel. What we're going to do is start off with the usual chatting among ourselves for a little bit. There'll be loads of time for questions. If you're watching virtually, please post your questions online using Slido. Remember if you're a serving Home Office civil servant that the anonymous button is available to you and I am slightly assuming that many of the anonymous questions will be from people currently working in government um, because this is all on the record. If you're in the room, you do have the Slido option if you can make it work here, uh, but otherwise just put your hand up and we will come to you in the usual way. So that's what we're going to do. No fire alarms scheduled, so if the fire alarm goes off, we'll have to exit very rapidly, but that's not going to happen, so let's, uh, let's kick off. Um, Philip, I just thought I'd come to you first, just to sort of set the scene. You know, those who have been in government a long time have known that the Home Office has had broad ranges of different responsibilities from time to time. I think when I first started in government, it still did broadcasting, it still did the fire service, which have now migrated to other uh, other rather sort of, you know, Johnny-come-lately departments like DCMS or D-Luck. Um, I think D-Luck does fire. Uh, what does the Home Office actually do and what actually preoccupies you most of the time as permanent secretary what are the areas that you're really having to focus on?
1: Well actually just to correct one thing straight away yeah. Jill, the Home Office still does the fire service. Oh right, okay. So it's not responsible for standards in buildings which is a okay. de role. role but it still does the fire central, okay. One Excellent. of the reasons why they have the central role in the grand yeah. Inquiry but uh, what does the Home Office do today? I mean just the reason it ha- historically had such a wide range of functions goes back into the 19th century when it was the department for everything that happened at home, if you like, inside the United Kingdom. Um, Its functions now, uh, I think, have a great deal more logic. So I would always think of them in terms of three broad areas. Uh, The first, what used to be known as the Office for Security and Counterterrorism, now the Office for Homeland Security. Its role is to lead and coordinate on behalf of government as a whole, the effort against terrorism, Um, and also uh, to ensure that the Home Office is properly uh, integrated into our other systems for Homeland Security such as dealing with hostile state activity and and the like. So very important uh, set of functions uh, right at the high security end of roles within government, uh, relatively small in terms of staff numbers compared to the function I'm going to talk about later, immigration. Um, but nonetheless very, very, very important and actually occupies a good deal of the time of somebody like me when I was Permanent Secretary or or, or Home Secretary, works closely obviously with security partners in the UK and abroad. Uh, The second area is everything to do with policing, crime and indeed the fire service Um, and um, that is uh, responsible for what you could describe as a more kind of typical array of policy and funding functions in a Whitehall policy department. It has some operational functions too, but the principal roles are funding the police in England and Wales, the legislative environment for the police in England and Wales, things like what are the discipline regulations and so on. Um, uh, So ministers have a range of important roles in relation to uh, policing services in England and Wales. Uh, Also, um, importantly, tackling crime. So Mm. if you think about prevention of crime and crime reduction, that's something that needs a much wider effort than merely the police. It typically needs a sort of whole of government approach or even a whole of society approach to dealing with some of the causes of crime and tackling those. So their responsibility is to lead on crime reduction, crime prevention, as well as all the issues around the funding of the police, the organisation of the police, and indeed Mm. the fire service. The third area, which tends to dominate media coverage Mm. uh, and political debate around the Home Office, is obviously the immigration and border system, which I'm sure we will talk about further. Mm. But I'll just now make a distinction, which I think doesn't get that much attention, between what you could describe as two, when I was there, I would think about it in terms of two broad areas of our responsibilities for the borders and immigration system because people tend to say there's a huge problem about the borders and immigration system. Actually, I would say there isn't. You could distinguish the border and immigration system into two broad categories. There are the relatively high volume, lower risk activities, such as, for example, um, uh, running, issuing passports. I'm talking here pre-COVID, COVID backlogs, very serious issue. But if you look pre-COVID, the system for issuing passports in the UK, the system for issuing overseas visas, the system for um, uh, running the border day to day, always problems would arise. But broadly, you had quite well run, I would say high functioning systems for high volume, lower risk activities. The thing which tends to attract all the attention is the relatively lower volume, higher risk activities around enforcement and rights-based claims, asylum, family-based claims for reunification in the UK, mm-hmm. other, a whole range of other r- mm-hmm. relatively complex cases, still not tiny volumes, and we're talking tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of cases, but compared to the 8 million passports we issued a year or the three million uh, overseas visas we issued a year, or the 140 million people a year, or 500 million tonnes a year coming across the border, these are smaller volumes. So the immigration and borders system is the third of the big responsibilities for the Home Office, which is also distinct in that that is the area where the Home Office is responsible for everything, from the highest level of policy objectives through to the operational delivery today, right now, at airports in this country, at Dover, and so on. Department as a whole, 35,000 staff Mm. now, and about 15 billion a year of budget.
0: And of those 35,000 staff, how many work on that sort of end-to-end immigration to borders numbers? So
1: in operational functions, about, my numbers may be a bit out of date, operational functions, about 25,000, roughly. But then there's some significant IT functions Mm. the organisation also has, which are partly to support the border and immigration world, but also, importantly, to support the police. Because the nearest thing the police have to a national IT capability sits in the Home Office and has sat there for a number of years.
0: Okay, so that's a bit of a scene setter from what the Home Office actually does. Sam, I want to come on to you. Um, I remember a, a friend of mine who was a Home Office minister said one of the unnerving things about being a minister in the Home Office was that you knew something somewhere was going wrong that could cost you your career, but you didn't know what it was or where it was going wrong. So you felt sort of, you know, always with a sense of jeopardy. Um, How does the Home Office feel from a sort of political perspective in terms of where you had to put your attention and what what you were having to grapple with on a day-to-day basis when you were advising Mr. Javid?
2: Yeah, I think that's probably quite a representative political view, uh, not just between ministers and advisors, but between parties, uh, especially since that period and during the labour years where, you know, it became famous for being the play, the graveyard for political ambitions. Um, I remember the PPS um, Principal private Secretary uh, in the office when we came in said, I was the first happy looking SPAD ever to come to the Home Office, because um, I was quite naturally interested in some of those areas. Um, it's, it's normally Normally, it's a bit more of an ashen face when people arrive there uh, if it's not something that they'd plan to do. Um, I guess, given the particular circumstances of of us arriving, it was actually it was on on the back of Windrush, which I think it's a topic we'll be coming on to. Um, uh, that obviously focused the mind, you know, because that like, and I think like a lot of precessors, you're coming in on a scandal because there's a reason why there's a vacancy, and so I think that does that does uh does sharpen the mind. Um, but I do, I do think it can be a bit overdone about kind of the mystique of the, you know, how how terrible and difficult it all can be from a political perspective. Um, you know, Theresa May's tenure was, as you said at the start, um, relatively long for for a minister, and um, I didn't personally find that the the department was constantly fighting you and everything. Um, I think a lot. I think there's been a lot of different experiences in the Home Office based on different management and leadership styles. And uh, I don't think it's inevitable that you, you will come out on a crisis because it also depends on the extent to which people uh, attribute the responsibility of that to the Secretary of State uh, as well. So it depends on uh, what the current expectations are for what's a resigning matter. And I think that's changed somewhat in recent years uh, in politics. Um, and if, so I think sometimes Home Secretaries feel the need to position themselves versus the Department. So that they are more likely, they can better blame the department for the issues which come up, rather than being seen as the the sole sort of person responsible for all the problems. And um, you do see it a lot in a lot of the decision making compared to some of the departments. Uh, it is not within the sort of political control. There's you know there's a real operational distinction in a lot of the decisions. And I think that I think a lot of the people on the political side are quite happy for it to stay that way because it, it, because it insulates you. Um, but there's only so much you can do. That you know, you are you're signing off on many submissions every day, often some quite complex cases, and I often I I, I sort of enjoy my time there because it's it's good it's a good way of learning about risk-based decision making. Uh, a lot of the decisions you're making are bad. Bad person A wants to do bad thing B, and your options are option one: significant reputational and political risk; option two: significant legal risk; or option three: significant security risk pick your poison. And there's only so much you can you know you, you can't fudge that. you've just got to make decisions. and and ultimately, in a risk management in a risk management business like the Home office, then there's there's always going to be uh, things which go wrong, which aren't your fault. Um, but I think the I think that is I think it is manageable. I don't think it is institutionally completely incapable of, uh, of providing the right advice. I just think it does have to deal with quite intractable problems. and therefore, there the, the will be problems coming up all the time and the extent to which a political career is hinged on that often depends on the extent to which they sort of are seen to politically own it rather than it being something in the machine that they can blame.
0: Okay, it's really interesting. I'll come back to the politics of it, but I just wanted to, uh, we are going to spend quite a lot of time on immigration and uh, asylum refugee policy and that set of issues there. But, you uh, when the famous fit-for-purpose phrase was used by John Reed when he came in, after the sort of scandal, as uh, Sam said, very often the Home Office has a new secretary of state after one has been forced, forced out. Um, and the consequence of that was the separation of criminal justice, which went to all you know, the prison system, which used to be the big nightmare for Home Secretaries. I remember when I was, there was always prison escapes that were jeopardising Home Secretary's careers, um, the famous Michael Howard, Derek Lewis stuff and things like that, uh, and put that into MOJ and leave police and crime policy, if you like, in the Home Office. Philip, you said you thought that the current arrangements had a logic and made sense. Um, if you'd been Permanent Secretary at the time when those changes were mooted, would you have said, yes, it makes sense to put that division there or would you have said actually no there is a logic as you said to owning the border sort of issue end to end as a logic to owning uh owning the policy and the sort of you know prison
1: end to it I wasn't there and I didn't go through that hypothetical exercise I mean the I don't think there was any great appetite when I was in the Home Office to take prisons back. Because we always recognised that we already had a very, very, very significant challenge in the responsibilities mm. we had. And indeed, compared to that time, mm. back in the, sort of, mm. you know, the noughties, mm. some of the issues that we faced had, had increased in scale. So the issues around you know, some elements of security, for example, mm. like I, I arrived mm. in 2017. And the first thing we had to address was the... Um, a wave of terrorist attacks mm. in 2017, right at the top of the agenda. Mm. So we already had a very, very significant mm. level of stretch. And I also think that in some ways the political climate towards the immigration debate has has hardened significantly mm. um, over that period. So there was no great appetite in the Home Office that I sensed to take, try to take mm. the prisons back. What I would say there was, was a recognition. and. Mm. maybe we'll talk about this later, mm. recognition of the need to make sure that the different components of the system responsible mm. for criminal justice mm. work more closely and effectively mm. together. Um, so that is MOJ mm. and the Home Office, but also includes, importantly, the CPS. Mm. So, I mean, you've referred to the mm. fact that immigration gets a mm. lot of airtime mm. and attention. I think, personally, there are some issues around some areas of crime, including crime against serious uh, offences against the person, which probably need a bit more attention, and that joined-up working which we were trying to make happen is, is is important to that.
0: Enver, you've worked on sort of criminal justice issues. Do you think the split? has led to better policy, better delivery. I,
3: I remember it very well. I was at the Prison Reform Pro- Trust at the time and actually contributed to the downfall of Charles Clark through some work we did on foreign national prisoners. And we were advocating the creation of uh, prisons and probation going to MOJ. Mm. And at the time everyone thought, well, this will help sort out the Home Office. It will be plain sailing from then on because take the problem out of it and it will sort it out and the MOJ will have it. Well, I think it shows that actually neither has happened. We still have a record prison population. We don't have prison escapes. We have more drugs in prisons than we do outside prisons. That's a well-known documented fact. We have high levels of self-harm in prison, high levels of mental health. So, you know, it's struggling under MOJ. The Home Office is still struggling. And I think what this tells me is that this is about politics, okay? This is about how those that have the power choose to run and lead an operationalized government because if you look at the values of the home office today and this might sound surprising they are wait for it compassion there you go someone has already laughed in the audience
0: professor travis we don't
3: respect courage and collaboration well you know i could take each of those and raise serious questions just in terms of collaboration with local government On Afghanistan, local government were tearing their hair out over collaboration. They were pleased that DLUC took Ukraine. Respect and compassion speak to anyone that we work with, the 14,000 people in the asylum or refugee system. uh, Very few will talk about being treated with compassion and respect. And courage, well, I guess you could argue that the new Home Secretary is seeking to be courageous, but not necessarily in the political direction that uh, I would definitely not support and not see it as courageous rather than desperate. So it's a problem of politics, I think, because the the department could work well. You know, the number of decision makers on asylum cases was run down by ministers, so therefore there weren't enough to make decisions, so we have a backlog of over 120,000. And civil servants say to me, that's because ministers ran down the numbers there to make decisions, didn't create an IT system, decisions being made on spreadsheets. These are political choices.
0: So let's hold that thought, but I just want to come to Sam. Sam, uh, when you were advising Sajid Javid, did he feel that he was able to work well with his colleagues at the Ministry of Justice, or did you at times think, you know, I really, really regret having lost that or is it just thank God I don't do prisons anymore and that's someone else in the cabinet's responsibility so at least I don't have to worry about that or well, did he never think about it that's possible too
2: I suppose a lot of sense it was it was not something you had to directly think about because it wasn't within your within your sort of responsibilities directly but that but that is the problem itself and you know, not having the sort of full cycle of justice under the same roof I think doesn't mean that you just do your bit and they do their bit Um, We did make the case to the Prime Minister to have sort of a criminal justice task force across government. I think there's probably various iterations of that most years, kind of trying to do it by committee. Um, But in my view, and I think to Emma's point about ultimately the political direction of things, I think structurally, if if they're not under the same roof, it's not going to have the same level of collaboration. And I've actually been an advocate for a few years for for splitting them away uh, for a couple of reasons, which through a political lens, I think makes sense um the the home secretary is the person seen and has the responsibility and the sort of the incentive to be seen as the sort of the strong person on crime uh and if they were the ones who were advocating for the funding for justice mm. the funding for prisons and criminal justice then i think there'll be, be better advocate for getting the right kind of public support the, uh, the public resourcing that the mj needs for its current responsibilities at the moment if you poll the public on things that uh, money should go to MOJ's the MOJ's purview is always right at the bottom. Um because it's just, you know, making life nice for prisoners and you know, giving criminals lawyers, et cetera, uh, in how it's seen. But actually, if it was the home home secretary who could see the full consequences of the failing system justice and felt responsibility for the the outcomes of that, then I think they would be actually a good advocate for appropriately funding the justice system. Um and then on the other side, uh for the immigration side, um, it could be seen from sort of conservative point of view to be a good sort of post-Brexit legacy. We can create a Department of Immigration. Um, I, I was actually unusually a special advisor in, ca- in Canada as well, uh, where they have a department for citizenship, bis- um, Citizenship, borders and immigration. And I think from sort of progressive sort of point of view, if you had immigration linked to integration, to citizenship, and you sort of detoxified it a bit from the, the, the enforcement um, history of the Home Office, then you can sort of make it, you can make it a bit more of a positive thing again um, although I know, I know conservatives on the other, on the other hand who worry about that because you're taking it away from the, the risk management and security sphere and making it more about you know feeding the labor market and you know having some nice citizens so there's, there's lots of arguments both ways but i think i think the structure is important for the politics because it's about what what does the cabinet minister care about and if it's not directly in their purview then it's never going to be at the top of their entry
0: Really interesting. I want to pick up what you were just saying there about, uh, about the potential for changing sort of immigration. Amelia, uh, you looked at Windrush. What did you think that the Windrush scandal really said to us about the sort of mindset culture, the way the Home Office operated as an institution? as opposed to the sort of policy per se of things like hostile environment?
4: Well, I mean, I think it's, it's quite hard to um, disaggregate those mm. two things. And I think that um, Home Office employees get a lot of um, criticism mm. for implementing um, government policy. And when, when, we, um, when we write about where the Home Office has gone, gone wrong and um, when you read um, particularly Wendy Williams's uh, review into how um, the Home Office got things so wrong and, and what the causes of the, the Windrush scandal um, were, y- y- you do have to kind of keep asking all the time, well, is that a kind of Home Office um, bureaucratic problem or is that the direct consequence mm. of um, policy decisions from, um, from ministers? But in terms, of, in terms of the culture, I suppose um, the best place to look is, is Wendy Williams's review, which was published in 2020. Um, it was an incredibly forensic um, investigation into how things had gone so wrong. Um, and it concluded that there was a um, culture of disbelief and carelessness um, within the Home Office a lack of empathy for individuals. Um, it also found that there was that the Home Office um, displayed um, ignorance um, and institutional thoughtlessness on the subject of race, in part consistent with institutional racism. Um, so, how much of that is directly the result of a government that's implemented um, a series of hostile environment measures or how much of it is to do with a kind of parallel process that we saw from 2010, 2012 onwards that saw 20% cuts to headcount within the Home Office, that saw structural reforms that took out a a layer of management that took away a lot of the kind of face-to-face contact that applicants might have had with um, Home Office staff. I mean, I think so much of it is um, the direct result of policy decisions.
0: Hmm. I mean, Philip, you had to clearly sort of juggle with, you know, as saying cuts in numbers, downward pressure on budgets, sort of sort of political environment. How do you think through actually what's the sort of right level of staffing of people dealing with immigration or citizenship claims and? One of the comments I know that's been made to us in the past has been that, you know, compared to some other countries, really junior, quite inexperienced staff quite often have to deal with casework, and that creates a culture of risk aversion that you reject, knowing things will be appealed, we have very high levels of appeals. Mm. And do you ever think, you know, have we got the right model for doing this, or is this just the best of juggling within the sort of limited resources made available to you.
1: No, I I did think, did wonder whether we had the right model always, and I'll come back to a particular example in a moment, but the general, your response to your general question, how do you assess, well you start, to be honest, Mm. by looking at all the evidence you've got in Mm. the moment about what is the level of performance, can you benchmark the level of performance either against past Mm. performance or external Mm. benchmarks like other countries, does it look good or not? I go back to my previous examples actually again pre-COVID on things like overseas visa issuance or passport issuance pre-COVID we were right up there as good as more or less any major country in the world and in terms of staffing numbers as well and efficiency of customer service it all looked pretty good not so it's perfect but pretty good um the example and then if there's a problem of course you try to get root cause analysis why is the problem there what are the options for fixing it so it's a typical Mm. business case Mm. business improvement type Mm. approach It just happens it's in the in the borders and immigration area it could be in the transport area or something else your question about did we sometimes wonder did I sometimes wonder whether the model was the right model yes and actually it goes back to what Enver said about asylum so it's quite interesting i discovered for example that in so in the UK we, we generally use exec in old civil service speak speak EOs, executive officers, as the asylum decision makers. And uh, they may be people who uh, left university a year before or something like that. They uh, they may be further on in their career, but it's a relatively junior level within the civil service system for making a decision, which is a very, for the individual on the other end of it, a very, very important decision after all. Life-changing decision, even if the decision is negative and gets overturned on appeal you're dealing with people who may indeed, and the evidence suggests a high proportion of them are, suffer, have suffered trauma. Mm. Real, you know, serious serious uh, ill effects they've already suffered so it's a very very important decision I discovered in Switzerland that they use obviously it's a different system smaller number of asylum cases and so on they use a grade seven equivalent in civil service speak which is three full levels higher to make asylum decisions now that would have required a complete rethink of our staffing model our structures uh, choices about where we might we recruit people but I I think there are go back to the point I was trying to make earlier about this, the the real issues on immigration tend to arise in the relatively lower volume, higher risk, higher complexity, rights-based claims, Mm -hmm. rights-based issues. I think there is an issue, rather nitty-gritty, bureaucratic, administrative, organisational issue about whether we have quite the right level of organisation for dealing with what are very often very complex, sensitive, high-impact cases.
0: I and mean, one of the things obviously you had to do when you were in the Home office is start setting up the arrangements for dealing with EU settled status and putting mm. that in place, which I think most people think uh, has been quite successful in very many ways and hopefully will go on being quite successful. How do you think about you know that as a different big new task that you had compared to just running the sort of standard processes that you were doing?
1: Yeah so it was I think it was very successful. Uh, it's, Essentially, that particular project now now mm. finished. It was very successful. There were widespread predictions that we would fail because, of course, the Home Office does fail. We did not fail. We set up a significant scale project, good leadership, very significant efforts to uh, make sure we had very good alignment between the political mm. direction and the execution mm. and a lot of outreach outside mm. the organisation and really trying to listen to the feedback, including mm. where it was where it was hostile to us. So a very significant uh, example of how actually the Home Mm. Office delivered. In fact, we delivered in the round on Mm. Brexit, being prepared for Brexit Mm. and all the many, many different Mm. varieties that might take. I would say we prepared for that very well, Mm. not just on EUSS, but also staffing the border. And also now um, the new immigration system, which Mm. was also being developed Mm. when I was there, though came into effect afterwards, essentially. Um, which also built in fact technically on many of the the, on the platform that we've designed for EUSS. So Home Office actually it gets an awful lot of Mm. awful lot of negative press uh, and I Mm. understand why but if you look at its record of delivery in a whole range of areas over the last five years I would say it has been pretty strong and you know stronger structurally, if you like, than than, than the trajectory before. That's not to underestimate the problems. I keep coming back to the hard cases, the rights-based cases, the asylum system, family reunification cases and the like.
0: Um, I pick up one of the questions from Slido, and I'm going to come to the audience, and maybe to Amelia and Ever and Sam here. Um, There are quite a lot of comments about racism in the Home Office. You mentioned the sort of, you know, possible hints of institutional racism in the Wendy Williams, you know, big verdict about whether she was gonna say it was institutionally racist or not, some concerns about, you know, ethnic minority representation at the senior official levels in the Home Office, whether enough of that, Um, the impact having ethnic minority Home Secretaries has had. I mean, do you, you know, question here from Peter Gregg, is it possible to administer the hostile environment or um, maybe other policies in a non-racist or anti-racist way? What can the Home Office do to make sure that the police and immigration services aren't a beacon of recruitment for racist officers and staff? You don't have to agree with that proposition, but what do, you, do you think the Home Office really is tackling this sort of blind spot that Wendy Williams shone a light on media. So,
4: so um, Diane Abbott makes quite an interesting um, point about some of the hostile inv- environment legislation and she mm-hmm. says it's impossible to have um, legislation that is designed to um, single out illegal immigrants without having um, people responding to it in a way that singles out people who they think look like they might be illegal immigra- immigrants. And that was certainly the finding, um, I think, by the High Court in relation to um, the right to rent Mm -hmm. legislation where they found it was um, proven to be um, racially discriminatory because landlords were self-selecting, were were choosing not to rent towards people that they had any kind of um, latent concern might not have the right documentation. And because landlords aren't trained as immigration officers, Mm. they were taking kind Mm. of proxy shortcuts Mm. around people's names, their Mm. skin color, their their accents. Mm. So um, I think there is a kind of unresolved um, question about um, the the, um, inherent discrimination um, that comes as a result of hostile environment policies. Wendy Williams made quite a number of recommendations, all of which were accepted mm. by Priti Patel mm. in, in her review, um, on, the, on, how to, um, on how to make the Home Office a more diverse and thoughtful on the subject of, of um, race and Britain's imperial history. Mm. Um, and I think in her review of her review that was published mm. earlier this year, she. Um, I mean, she was very, very disappointed across the board mm. with um, how well the Home Office had done in implementing its, its proposals. Um, but I think eight of the 30 um, commitments have been, have been ticked, as it were. Mm. But the ones around, um, there was a proposal that said it was important to develop a training model for all, that all 35,000 mm. Home Office employees mm. would be given in the history of um, empire and Britain's history um, a colonial past and the history of black Britons. And that training program is still, um, it's, it's two years now I think overdue and it's still being worked on in a, in a um, Coventry University. The kind of development of it has been incredibly problematic. Right.
3: Enver. Yeah, I, I mean, look, it, it's pretty simple in some ways, isn't it? If you have an Home secretary that says everyone that's coming to this country seeking asylum is illegal, then you send out a message uh, that the nationalities that are coming are illegal and are some kind of aliens, uh, which, which has racialized uh, overtones. Of course it does, because if you look at the nationalities, you're looking at countries that uh, are not European. They are countries where people have different ethnic minorities, whether that's Iran, Kurds, Afghans, and I could go on. And their experience, therefore, is that they are being discriminated against because the assumption, the moment they they arrive, is that they are guilty until proven innocent, not innocent until proven guilty, because there's a culture of disbelief which is set from the top by the lead person who's ultimately responsible for that department saying that everyone is illegal so consequently people will experience it yeah. and perceive it as a form of racism that that is not surprising is it in the same way that the problem with the stephen lawrence yeah. case was that the way the police investigated was experienced by the black community as being differential and discriminatory than the white community. You know, I used to run a charity called Just for Kids Law. We had two exact cases, a white guy and a black guy, both 17, at a festival, both charged for possession of drugs. One was given a custodial sentence, one was given a community sentence. So where you have those experiences is perceived as racism.
0: And Sam, Sajid Javid, I think, was the first ethnic minority Home Secretary, I think, first of first of the three now. Um, did he sort of perceive himself having a sort of different role in changing the culture, you know, different ability maybe to get to grips with some of these cultural issues inside the Home Office coming in in the wake of the Windrush scandal?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think he he certainly felt the the imperative to show that things were changing and it was literally on the day that we arrived in the morning, I think by that afternoon, he was in Parliament that day as the Home Secretary um, saying, we're not going to say hostile environment anymore, we're going to say compliant environment. Um, I'm not sure that was entirely chapter of number 10 at the time, but we had to do something which was signaling a new, a new shift. Um, but I do think there's, uh, well, I'd also say as well, actually, in terms of, especially in the senior civil servant layer and the policymaking layer, um, I think it was uh, it was, it was notably quite homogenous ethnically, I think it's fair to say, um, which is something I know he, he, he noticed, but that is the case actually in Whitehall quite a lot. Uh, And also, it's also the case that as he was going to uh, European summits, the sort of monthly Justice and Home Affairs councils, he would always be the only non-white face uh, around the table in a European setting. So I think sometimes we can be a little bit sort of, you know, sort of self-flagellatory when it comes to this kind of thing, Um, when UK is quite good, it's certainly relative to the rest of Europe in in its representation, um, especially democratically. Um, So I think I think to some extent he felt that imperative, but uh, I think would also resent sort of people describing greater responsibility, greater uh, or they need to have certain views because of his his certain racial background. And that's where you get the reaction from some on the opposite side of the spectrum, who sort of seem to sometimes imply that um, the last three home secretaries have had the wrong views for their race. Um, I think a lot of these issues are quite intractable in the sense that if you're if you're sitting at that filter point in terms of who is allowed into our country uh, and you accept that we should have a control in immigration, then I struggle to think how even the most perfect and representative system wouldn't have that sort of friction in terms of well because by definition you know uh, people coming in from the outside of our country are not necessarily going to be from the same race racial majority and you know it, it's sort of it's kind of inbuilt what 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 you can change is the is the extent to which people think you're doing it with the right motivations and the right tone. And I I think actually without significant shifts in policy that those perceptions have changed. In the labour years, immigration enforcement was a political problem, primarily in not enforcing it enough. And in recent years, it's become a problem here in terms of um, you you see people in the streets, stopping their neighbours being taken away by the um, immigration enforcement officials. So I think a lot lot is set by the tone. But I do think structurally, it's a very difficult um, area of policy to be in and it's very inherently um, controversial and so there's only so much you can can mitigate that for.
0: Very interesting. Very interesting. I want to go to the questions in the room, so I'm going to take them, oh we've got lots of questions in the room. Um, Let's start at the back, well that's Alex Thomas but anyway. (laughs) yeah. and then we'll come over here and then we'll do, yeah, we'll do it in bunches of, bunches of three. So we'll do a couple of rounds. Alex.
1: Sorry, Jill, abusing being a staff member here. I'm Alex Thomas at the uh, uh, IFG. Uh, does the panel think that the suggestion that Home Office civil servants have been organizing to oppose the Rwanda policy is a good thing, an example of Home Office courage, or a bad thing, a departure from civil service impartiality? And if they were running the Home Office, how would they respond to that?
0: Okay, uh, let's come down here
5: and then we'll do this one to them. Dave Nita, lawyer and poet. Um, It must be evidence of, um, just talking about the racist Mm -hmm. issue, it must be evidence of the strength and success and resilience of racism, and I'm using those words broadly, strength, Mm -hmm. success, and resilience, that we are living in a period now the most diverse government we've ever had in the history of Britain. Visibly diverse. Mm. And the most diverse home office leadership for at least the past five to seven years in terms of leadership. And yet, black and brown people in this country uh, are more, feel like it's a more hostile environment. So the structure of racism is such, the success of it, the resilience of it is such that promoting people of color all the way up to the top have, if anything, led to more draconian um, sort of outlooks and hostile environments. And uh, I'm not commenting on their capacity in any other way. But if we're looking at diversity only in terms of visibility and not in terms of substantive change, in, in terms of um, social progress and fairness and justice for all, then we have failed and we have celebrated racism as a principle almost constitutionally enshrined. Okay. And what should we be doing, and this is the question, what should we be doing to create an environment right at the top and right through all levels where this can be addressed and we can have a fear of society.
0: Okay, and is there a final question on this side? Let's go to here and then we'll work back up. Yes.
3: Charles Hymers from the uh, Daily Telegraph. Um, do you think um, a target of tens of thousands of uh, uh, overall immigrant immigration is a good one? And if so, how should it be achieved?
0: Okay, well, that's a great diverse set of questions. Um, first of all, um, Philip, if you were Home Secretary, uh, you have, if you were still Permanent Secretary of the Home Office, how would you feel about the appearance that some of your officials seem to be organising to oppose a policy? I mean, Matthew Reikoff obviously asked for a direction on value for money grounds on the Rwanda policy, uh, which is slightly different. I'm just saying he didn't know that there was evidence enough for a deterrent effect to justify the VFM, um, which you might have done.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the direction is completely yeah, different. that's, completely different, di- to completely you, different, that's right. different to That's different I think if it, Alex's question, I think, was, um, you know, or put it in my terms, how would I feel if I were permanent yeah. secretary and there was evidence that staff were organising to oppose uh, the, uh, the government's policy? I would be very quickly onto mm-hmm. the uh, uh, set of responsibilities for civil mm-hmm. servants and um, uh, it would, unless they you know, need to, Talk to HR, you find out (laughs) exactly what has happened, but it's completely inappropriate. It's absolutely inappropriate. I mean, uh, my understanding was that it was the union, Mm -hmm. uh, or Mm -hmm. unions, PCS, which Mm -hmm. was taking activity Mm -hmm. in relation to the government's policy uh, on Rwanda. Uh, That is another matter. The union is not uh, a Home Office employee. Mm -hmm. It's completely inappropriate for a Home Office employee to to express uh, opposition to the government's policy. It's Mm -hmm. just not professional conduct.
0: Anyone else want to come in on that? If not, let's move to the question about, uh, about. Yeah, I can see that, you yeah, know, we've had a successive of uh, ethnic minority home secretaries. they have all been conservative home secretaries who have, you know, shared the policies of the Conservative Party. I mean, Sam, you work for Sajid Javid. Um, do you sort of see, sort of, you know, is there anything beyond point here that, Yeah, maybe we elect a different party in government sometime if that's the electorate's view and you would get different policies or do you think there's something more deep going on underneath?
2: Yeah, I think, uh, well, I'm actually at the US for a conference on racial justice um, where we visited George George Ford Memorial and talked about lots of these sort of systemic issues and um, I think a lot of the, in, in the US they had some very explicit yeah, you know, racist policies such as redlining of housing zones and things, which I couldn't see many parallels for. But Windrush is one of the main examples I could think of where we'd had a systemic problem. Um, but that there, there was some criticism here about which I was feeling the need to defend about about these former home secretaries and the current home secretary being from a you know ethnic minority background, and and yet and yet, uh, and I, I just I really don't um, don't appreciate that sort of uh, notion that. Uh, that that your sort of racial background should determine your your policy view in any way um, it's a, it's an incredibly mainstream view to to believe that we should we should be controlling immigration and that actually is the moral thing to do and um yeah I, I i think some some of the commentary from certain publications and including some cartoons have been bordering on quite racist i think themselves in in the way that they've sort of ex- expected certain uh views from the from ham sectors. so um just on that point uh, i I don't. Um, I, I don't think it's worth dwelling too much on the particular background of Home Secretary, And it's, they are representing the policies of the party, policies which are largely actually still quite popular. You know, if we're thinking beyond the sort of the world of NGO and legal side of things, the, the public are pretty pretty right wing on on these sort of issues. And uh, and indeed, the Home Office is seen by a lot of conservatives as being part of the problem in the other direction. Uh, it's seen as sort of you know the the purveyor of the ECHR soft approach to managing cases and things so so the Home Office kind of loses in every direction really.
0: Um, uh, Enver um, I'm going to ask all of you about the tens of thousands of Charles's question you know is that feasible is that realistic?
3: Um, well well I, I think we have a, a government that doesn't seem to have a very good memory about targets I mean it undid David Cameron so why a Home Secretary would want to, to repeat that is beyond me, and we seem to have a government which is very good at over-promising and under-delivering. I mean, the previous Home Secretary said she was going to stop all the boats, so what does the new Home Secretary do? Uh, say the same, even though the numbers are increasing, and the issue is far more complex, and anything this government is seeking to do about it is essentially not going to work, it's unprincipled and unworkable, and will not deal with, with, with the root cause. So I'm, I'm just rather astonished they even think that a target is the right thing and the right way to approach it. You know, th- there's nothing wrong with wanting to control immigration. It's all about how you do it uh, and how you approach it and whether you approach it in some kind of principled workable manner, uh, which dare I say it is true to the values of the home office. And I'll repeat them again, com- compassion, respect, mm. courage, and collaboration.
0: I just wanted to ask, and um, one of the things that we've seen inside government, we seem to be seeing now, building on Charles's question, is a bit of tension between the Home Office and Number 10 yeah. over liberalizing immigration to an extent to promote growth. Philip, are you were used to working in the Treasury. Um, now we've ended free movement from the EU, which obviously was one of the things that got in the way of delivering the 10,000 target, That net targets are impossible anyway. But, oh, um, uh, Is the Home Office sort of, you know, with the project? Or is it a member of the anti-growth coalition, as Liz Truss might call it, and thinking it's actually got to prioritise bearing down on that. Uh, And, you know, the economy can go hang. We've seen Swella Bravman talking about students with major UK success export, things like that. I mean, is it sort of numbers rather than value?
1: I'm afraid you've got to ask somebody else if you want an insight into the Home Office thinking as of today. Um, But
0: is it institutionally, do you think, in a place where it feels that it's, you know, like the Treasury used to feel on public spending, we used to feel everybody else was against us. Does the Home Office think only it really understands the need to control migration, everybody else just wants more people, whether for the health service, whether for farmers, whether for whatever, and just finding the easy way out? Well, the
1: Home Office is the department responsible for controlling immigration legal Mm -hmm. political responsibility for the exercise of those Mm -hmm. controls it's obviously a political task to set the objectives Mm -hmm. and how close the objectives should be how closely they should be aligned to economic goals whether they should Mm -hmm. be more about providing public confidence Mm -hmm. that that there is very tight control whatever the political agenda Mm -hmm. is that's something that has to come from Uh, the Home Secretary and the Prime Minister and from Cabinet, and it is not uncommon Mm -hmm. to find that there is some tension between the two. So uh, when I was in the Home Office, Mm -hmm. of course, there would be, there was a a lobby for more inflow of people to do seasonal Mm -hmm. agricultural work. And indeed, we ended up with Mm -hmm. a seasonal agricultural workers scheme. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's not uncommon, but it, it has to be a political task to decide what is the priority.
0: Okay. Amelia, do you view on uh, targets? On targets, yes, numbers? I mean,
4: I think, um, as Enver says, we have such a clear um, lesson to take from um, David Cameron's initial um, announcement of the target of getting net migration down to the tens of thousands which really was, was such a problem for his government, and, and not least because these targets, from a journalistic point of view, are very useful because we get the figures every quarter and um, we saw you know, the government
0: failing um, quarter after quarter. Sam, do you want to come in on targets? Would you think there's something yeah. we should be aiming to revive?
2: I, I, I think... Uh, I will... I won't really give a view on the, whether it's desirable or not, but whether it's implementable or not, I think it does depend on the degree to which you, know, you need you need cross-government buy-in to what the consequences of that are. Um, I, I'd like to your an analogy with the Treasury, because uh, you know, the Treasury is the only institution which has an inbuilt incentive to reduce taxes. The Home Office is the only department which has an inbuilt incentive to to reduce numbers, or at least if that's the target you give it. Um, Actually, ironically, in Canada, uh, my experience, there the all the provinces would compete with each other. The numbers they would be using was how many immigrants they would attracted that year or that month. Um, so it doesn't have to be that dynamic. But um, I think, you know, like for the public, people in politics like the idea of reducing the overall number. But then as soon as you disaggregate that and say, you know, what about the Afghan interpreters? What about the, you know, and kind of break it all down? The person you want to to deliver social care for your mother. Um, then it gets a lot harder. And I think it's the same as taxes. You know, everyone wants to cut taxes, but then when you look at what you need to cut, uh, it gets harder. So it really has to be a cross-government, sort of holistic view.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Let's do some more questions. Uh, let's go here, down there, and then we'll go back up here. Sorry, Penny, I'm just trying to...
2: Oh, hi, I'm Tony yes, Travers
6: from Tony. the NSE. I mean, it's a fascinating discussion and one of the things surely that makes the Home Office's job very difficult is the fact that politicians of all parties interpret their role in the light of public opinion, and they, that t- takes them in a particular direction. Mm. And yet almost everything the Home Office does to it, prisons, the police, passports I'll get off things that we can with P in a minute, immigration, mm-hmm. asylum infinite sorry, in, intimately affect individuals' lives. Yet the department itself can't be open to any of the pressures or contacts that would make it possible to understand how things worked for them. So, uh, you know, it, it only, I think, I think I'm right, only MPs can really contact the Home Office about individual migration and asylum cases. I don't think you can do it as an individual citizen. So the, my question is, is, it, is in a sense the job of the Home Office officials almost impossible to be uh, sensitive to individuals, given the pressure on it, and yet yet it matters so much to individuals in every single case as as to what they do.
0: The Home Office is, in many cases, making almost genuinely life and death decisions. it's It's It's
6: affecting individuals' lives, but in a way that's almost impossible from inside there, given the numbers and the scale and the pressure and the political environment, to do it in a sensitive way for many, many people.
0: Okay, let's go to the next question. Yeah. yeah. Hi, uh, Lizzie Dearden from The Independent. Um, probably a question for both Sir Philip and Sam, but um, it was Sajid Javid who first declared a major incident about channel crossings. This is a problem that's been going on for several years now, and there were um, forecasts from the ICIBI and others that it would continue to be a, a growing problem. So um, my question was whether a third country agreement similar to Rwanda... Mm-hmm or a offshoring process has been considered before by other Home Secretaries or at any point in the Home Office? And, and if not, why not? You know, if, if it's such a good idea, why wasn't it done before? Okay, and right at the back, Penny.
1: Yeah. Um, I w- obviously, as all of the panel have been discussing, um, the Home Office has a huge number of responsibilities. And I was just wondering what the panel thought about the idea that you often hear that because the Home Office deals with you know, security, terrorism, this fosters a culture of distrust that Enver mentioned earlier, and that then leads it to deal with uh, immigration and asylum policies in a particular way that we see with uh, leads to certain outcomes.
0: That's a really good question. That was, that was echoing what was going to be my last, last question. So let's do these uh, first two questions. So Tony's question, I mean, sort of, you know, the Home Office, if you like, is almost the department that is, you know, most, alert to populist pressures in many ways, and yet is dealing with difficult case after difficult case after difficult, you know. How can you sort of, is it possible to sort of balance those in a way that, you know, marries control with humane decision-making and things, Enver?
3: Of course it is. I mean, the NHS is under huge political pressure, making life decisions, life and death decisions on a daily basis and uh it wants to approach them with with compassion and humanity of course you can do it in the home office the idea that you can't because you're under the spotlights uh and you're dealing with with difficult cases is is just a nonsense frankly uh because i don't think the complexity of the case is any more complex than the nhs the political pressure is that much different than it has been under the nhs covid Winter bed crisis. And, and let's just be clear about public opinion because I think there's a bit of a myth going around the room here. The, the Ipsos Mori tracker survey on immigration that came out this week, that was published by British Future, showed that the, the, the question of immigration in and of itself is no longer toxic, that the public post Brexit are much more relaxed about immigration. The public is split on Rwanda 50 50, whether it's good or bad. And if you ask the public about small boats, people will say they are worried about it. But if you ask the public, do you think we should welcome refugees? They will emphatically, up to two-thirds, will say yes. So, you know, this idea that the public is simply where the Home Secretary is, is just not the case.
0: Philip, one of the things that struck us when we were doing some work on migration a bit ago was ministerial involvement in immigration casework that so many decisions, in a way that DWP doesn't make sort of benefit appeals end up on the minister's, minister's desk, that ministers were so involved in so much immigration casework. I mean, do you think that's the sort of inevitable and a a good way of running the system?
1: Well, first of all, let me just say, I strongly agree with Enver. It it is absolutely, it is possible to run a system Mm. like this with all the values that you described. And indeed, I would say most of the time that is how it is run. I have spent a lot of my time as PermSec and the Home Office Mm. visiting the Mm. teams doing exactly this work right across the country and they're staffed by very dedicated people trying to live those values and doing the best they can It is all a matter of training, the systems, the processes they're given, the leadership they're provided locally, the the resources, all of those things which are eminently within ultimately uh, control, Mm. political control and organisational control. Um, uh, Your... Question, um, Jill,
0: mm-hmm. do you remind me? About whether ministers, oh, the whether, involvement whether, in whether we politicise immigration cases. So, so case there are
1: two, two categories of decisions, as mm. I recall, two categories mm. of decisions that in the immigration world that ministers mm. cannot take and don't take. Mm. Uh, uh, one is a decision about who to should enter the country mm. literally at the border, which mm. I think is a, a reserved mm. in law to a border force officer. Mm. Um, and the other is a decision about who can be detained or arrested mm. by an immigration officer. Mm. Again, the ministers mm. are, are not able to get mm. it. Otherwise, the decisions in law are mm. matters for the Secretary of State for the Home Department. So ministers mm. are able to make mm. these decisions. Of course, for the great part, these decisions mm. are delegated mm. through a whole structure mm. to officials, the kind mm. that we've described. Um, but let's face it, we are dealing with sometimes very politically sensitive mm. Groups of cases, groups of issues, and ministers—I mm. I, I, suspect—in successive governments, mm. over many years, have said that they want to look at partic- typically, usually smallish mm. number of cases themselves, and that's that. With as the law, with the law as it stands, that is within their purview.
0: Um, Rwanda, do any of you know anything about whether offshoring has been considered in the past? Anyone looks at Amelia, <laughs> who's probably the most likely to know what the Home Office was. Doing in previous incarnations. Uh, so, we'll part of yes, that. Yes,
3: yes. David what? David Blanket.
0: David Blanket did. All right. Okay. So you have got your answer in the room. Uh, so over there. Uh, I just wanted to come, just briefly, just have one question, and then I'm going to come to the, the final question about you know, have we got the sort of bundles of functions right given some of the sort of you know mentalities you need to do things? I just wanted to have a quick thing about. The, how was this role on police and its relationship? We've now got police and crime commissioners, which were an innovation in 2010. I'm not sure whether deemed to be a wholly successful innovation given the sort of low level of public salience of police and crime commissioners some of the sort of scandals that have dogged them. We've had tensions between the Home Secretary, the Mayor of London, over the Commissioner to the Met, and things like that. Have we actually got the right structures in place? Philip, might go to you. Uh, is it sort of workable, the way in which we're trying to, you know, demarcate what the Home Office does, what police and crime commissioners do, and the operational independence police forces now? Is, have we got those relationships right?
1: So, said, so in my experience when I was there, it's workable um, uh, and indeed improvements can mm. be made um, uh, and are made. I, I think different, different questions to whether it's mm. optimal, whether, mm. whether it's the right structure mm for you know, the next 20 years, for example. I'm not thinking so much of the role of police and crime commissioners here, but the perennial debate about mm. whether 43 police forces, territorial police forces in England and Wales is right. Um, uh, some of them really mm. quite small. Mm. It, you go, to the, go to, back a step to mm. what's the problem. Mm. One thing we have not discussed mm. is the changing nature of crime. Mm. Many, mm-hmm. some traditional mm. crime types, theft and robbery, on the decline, structurally been on Mm. the decline, but other crime types, fraud, Mm. online crime, massively on the rise. Mm. And I'm not not sure there are many people who would say that the criminal justice system as a whole, or indeed, including the sort of factors Mm. that can influence prevention, has got the right answer to that. Mm. And I'm not sure that if you were designing a system to deal with online crime, you would necessarily come up with 43 territorial police forces. Mm. I think there are a number of questions there about whether our, uh, our approach mm. in the criminal justice system really is, you know, is it absolutely what we're mm. going to need for the next mm. 20 years? Uh, I picked up online yeah. crime. but I, You could also mm. take the example of about the massive amounts of forensic mm. evidence that come with modern technology, mm. with phones or Wi-Fi mm. routers or whatever mm. it is and the challenge that presents for policing, mm-hmm. prosecutors, for the courts, in prosecuting some very high harm offences mm-hmm. such as sexual violence.
0: That's really interesting. I'm gonna to come to the final question because I know we're, we're running out of time, which is, you know, this question asked, you know, we've got these sort of controlly sort of functions, Counterterrorism dealing with the police, also got this running the immigration system. Sam was giving us the example of Canada, which is pro-immigrant and, you know, sees itself as very welcome to refugees, obviously has very controllable borders. Not many people come in small boats over to uh, to Canada, um, but has put immigration and citizenship in the same department. Uh, some of us have thought that with immigration playing a much bigger economic role now post-ending free movement, maybe you need to have a different mentality towards work visas and things like that. Um, just to all our panel, have we is the Home Office now in the right structure, Enver, we've got the right structures from the Home Office, do you have a reform you would like to see that you think would deliver better outcomes?
3: I, on? I, I, think, I think there is merit in the way that when Labour came in in 97 it, it took youth justice out into a non-departmental mm-hmm. public body to look at the, the, the pros and cons of that. I'm not saying it's absolutely mm-hmm. the right thing to do, but for end-to-end asylum decision-making uh, I think you, you, may, you could possibly do much better and ensure better quality decisions in a more timely manner that do genuinely see the face behind the case, which for me is the takeaway message from the, from the so, Wendy Williams So interview. that's an,
0: an, an ALB taking out that, but leaving the rest of migration... I think it needs to be
3: like seriously that. looked at as, as a viable option.
0: Okay. Sam, what would, you, what would you do having been inside the Home Office and a number of other government departments that you've seen?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think, uh, as I said earlier, I-, I would, I would try and bring crime and justice together under under one roof. Um, uh, but conscious that that does bring a lot of a lot of new problems with prisons and things. Uh, I think there's merit in creating that sort of separate borders, immigration, citizenship department. Um, but also, it still may feel quite heavy at that point. And the, some of the homeland security functions of the Home Office could well move more towards the centre, where actually a lot of the decisions are made um, into the National um, Security Secretariat. Um, I was trying to do the opposite when I was in the Home Office because I wanted the Home Office to be to, this, to be the strong department. But I think you know, to, to rebalance the, the overall portfolios, I think that that could make sense. Um, I, just on the crime point, um, uh, I, don't, I don't think the structures are ideal on policing, as Philip said. But um, you have to be careful what you wish for in terms of getting operationally involved in those things as ministers. Uh, it is notable that we're the most centralised developed country in the world with an incredibly decentralised law enforcement um, uh, system. Um, But in general, um, I think it's worth noting that the original fit for purpose quote was about the immigration part of the Home Office, and it was actually, it was coined by a senior civil servant that John Reid had asked to look into the Home Office. And I think the debate we've had today reflects that most of the the, the concerns about the Home Office's functions, and I would say politically as well, is is within the immigration realm rather than the other parts of the department.
0: You've looked at this do you think a dedicated um, immigration department is the way forward well uh,
4: one of one of wendy williams many unfulfilled recommendations is to have a um migrant SAR. um and even if it were kind of within mm. the home office that would clearly be um a way of focusing attention on on some of these issues but i i mean i see at the moment we don't know who the refugees minister is post Lord mm. Harrington, is that right? Yeah. I mean, the, the, yeah. yeah, there's um, a bit of a, a gap there. But the, yeah, the, other, the other kind of structural thing that I always think is really curious is if you speak to people from the Foreign Office who travel around the world mm. kind of mm. trying to present Britain as this very open, welcoming mm. place, it's, it's kind of almost inconceivable that they come from the, the same mm civil service pool, as, as the people in the Home Office
0: whose life mission is to present mm. a much more closed um, mm. Britain. Yeah, I think that's true that c- quite a few of ambassadors and high commissions quite like control over visa issuance, I think, uh, in country, um, picked up some of the consequences. Philip, what would you, uh, what would you change or nothing? Do you think
1: Home Office is perfect? Well, I'd want to know what is. one's trying to achieve. because. Because typically there's a lot Mm. of reaching for the organisational change Mm. lever because that's a lever Mm. that can be reached for. In my experience, unless you're clear A about what Mm. you're trying to achieve and B what the underlying problems are, the organisational change lever itself can lead to a lot of time and effort Mm. spent not achieving a great deal.
0: I think that is a very good warning that applies not just here but to every machinery of government change that government ever contemplates and with that I'm going to draw it to a close so thank you all very much for coming thanks to everybody who was watching online thanks for your questions I hope we sort of touched on many of them in the room and could you just thank our excellent panel thank you, yeah, thank you.